Hello, ABF family. We are so excited that you have chosen to join us on our online service. Well, we would love to connect with you and support you in any way we can. So go ahead and text us at 97000 and let us know what's going on in your life. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Man, our, our staff team loves to support you. We love to pray for you. So make sure that we hear from you this week. Well, for those of you that live locally, man, we'd love for you to come out to the church and get involved. There's so many ways that you can get involved here, jumping into a Bible study, a service project, or one of our children's events. Man, check out our website at agorabible.org to find out more information. Well, our ongoing ministries are only made possible through your generous financial support. So if you'd like to give a donation, uh, go onto our website and hit the Give tab. Well, I hope you are excited to dive into God's Word. Well, before we begin, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we just invite your Spirit to work in and through us. God, we love you so much, and we are just... Awesome. It's awesome that we can open up your word and that you speak to us. So, Lord, as the word is presented, may we have ears and hearts that are open, ready to hear from you. We love you so much, and we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to our online service, church family, and uh, just excited to spend some time with you getting into God's Word. And as you probably already see from the title of this, we're working through this series called Meltdown. And I've, I've genuinely enjoyed taking some time and just working through different stories and kind of uh, cautionary tales from Old Testament uh, examples and uh, New Testament examples of just learning from our failings. And I think that's an important part of growing in Christ is the ability to be able to grab things from uh, times past that you're like, man, I really blew it and I'm going to change. I'm going to be uh, different the next time I collide with that circumstance. And so this week we're continuing in that series. And probably when you see the title, when you see uh, Meltdown and Jonah, you might be wondering which one I'm going to address because his really his entire story is just an account of different meltdowns. You might uh, first think of the first meltdown with his choice uh, to try to run from God, which anyone that's spent any amount of time trying to run from God realizes that's not very effective. And this futile attempt that took him on a ship, that took him heading the exact opposite direction of where God had called him to go, that ultimately landed him thrown overboard and then swallowed by a huge fish. It's an unbelievable story of God's pursuit of us despite our unfaithfulness. So that could have been the direction that I had gone. Or another one that I could have landed on as I was working through this story this week is I could have spent some time just looking at really his, I'd describe best, his half-hearted sermon to the Ninevite people. Basically, after he finally agrees to go and call these people to repent, he marches through the city and he basically tells them, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Basically on repeat, this non-passionate sermon, if you will, uh, just saying in, in, in 40 days, unless they repent, they're going to be overthrown. So I could have just pointed to that, obviously, as a, as a meltdown, just an opportunity missed, maybe you might consider that. But I decided instead to look at his post-revival pouting 
as the, the emphasis of this week's meltdown. What do I mean by pouting? What do people pout about? You probably have heard that expression. I'm not just talking about big lips that we see present day with supermodels. I'm talking about the pouting that happens, the pouting that occurs when we don't get things our way. And really pouting starts very early in life. Anyone that's a parent recognizes when their kid's face looks like this. They've got arms crossed. They're, they're, they're just disappointed. They didn't get their way. But unfortunately, it's not something that just happens as a child. It's something that happens our entire life. We just get a little bit better at masking it, how we respond to it. As adults, we choose to, instead of maybe sticking out our bottom lip and crossing our arms, instead what we tend to do is we withdraw emotionally to demonstrate our displeasure. Many, if you think about, operate in a perpetual place of pouting. Life just hasn't gone how they had hoped or how they had desired. And so basically it leads them to missing out on so much that God has planned or intended for their life because they can't seem to get over them not getting their way. Things not going the way they had planned, the way they had hoped, they'd been told no, or, or just the outcomes hadn't played out the way they had desired. So we're going to spend some time in Jonah's story, and really he's a, uh, not necessarily a great testimony of someone getting on the other side of this, but just a character study and somebody in the direction that it can take you if we're not careful to, even a place where you're questioning your life and whether or not you'd rather live or die. It's really a, a cautionary tale. And the reason I think it's a, a cautionary tale is because the only one, as you look at suggestions as to who wrote this book, the only one that would know some of the intimate details of this story to the degree when there was no onlookers, there's no witnesses seeing all this take place, most likely the author of this was Jonah himself. As he reflects back, on the journey that God took him on and confronted him in a number of arenas after he would melt down. Let me pray before we begin this story. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to gather around uh, your word and spend time just uh, learning from different uh, examples in scripture. And we have uh, our own stories and our own accounts of times where we've slipped down this road of uh, where things didn't go the way we had hoped or pleased and didn't necessarily respond in an ideal way. I ask that this would be a profitable time just learning from the story of Jonah, God. I pray that you'd enter into our uh, even this online time and meet us exactly where we're at. We ask that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, just to catch you up to where we're at in the story of Jonah, basically, after Jonah goes with this non-compelling sermon, this call to repent to the people of Nineveh, there's this huge, unexpected revival. Literally, we're told that the entire nation, from the least to the greatest, even up to the position of the king of Nineveh, all repent and commit to living differently moving forward. So this, this should have been a time, this should have been a time where there's 
just celebration where Jonah as a prophet, this would have been amazing. And imagine any missionary or somebody that had been out on the field coming back and reporting that, yes, I, I got the message out there and everyone turned, everyone repented. I think of the Liljegrins that have spent so much time ministering overseas over the years, a long-term uh, missionaries of ours, just such a blessing. I can't imagine them coming back from one of their uh, Russia trips and reporting saying, hey, we were in Moscow, we shared the gospel, and everyone turned to Jesus. You'd be like, wait a second, what do you mean everyone? No, everyone, from the least to the greatest. That's basically what's taken place here, this massive city. And so let's take a look in the chapter four of Jonah to see what response we actually get from Jonah. It says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Love that interaction. Well, we see a lot going on here and the the words of the great lyricist Cindy Lauper, we see your true colors shining through, Jonah. That's exactly what we see. We get a, a glimpse of what's going on in Jonah's heart, and it's a little bit concerning if we're honest. If you think about it, this should have been the greatest addition to his prophet resume as he's building it. I mean, seeing that level of response to a rescue offer but we're told in the text that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The word used there, the original word for angry, actually means white hot or red hot with rage. He was so embittered at this idea. You see, God, uh, Jonah did what God wanted, but God didn't do what Jonah wanted. See, Jonah was a little bit confused about how this is intended to work. Jonah wanted God to conform to his wishes, not vice versa. And you wonder, well, what's Jonah's deal? Why was he so upset that this group of people repented and was going to see rescue? What kind of a darkness is going on? But as you explore the story of Jonah and you get, dig in a little bit and understand who the Ninevites were, they were actually known for their brutality. They would have been, if you want to make a, a, a modern day parallel, they would have been the uh, Nazis of that day, basically taking new territory by force, being cruel and unreasonable, basically a, uh, just a, a pretty miserable people group. And that's why it's fascinating that we see this, this demonstration of God's mercy. You would think, man, they were beyond reach, beyond repair. Until this point in the story of Jonah, we've never actually heard Jonah express his thoughts about the Ninevites. We've obviously assumed that his hate for them ran deep, but now it's confirmed by him coming to the place where he's saying, man, I would rather die. Literally, he'd rather see his life taken away than them see this forgiveness extended 
through Jesus Christ. And it's interesting as he starts explaining, it's kind of funny because it seems like he's trying to help God understand. Well, that's why I was heading to Tarshish, as if uh, God didn't know why he was running the opposite direction. And then he begins, after he's explaining things to the Almighty God, he then begins to scold God. Think about what he's scolding God about. He's listing uh, all these different characteristics about God as if they were shortcomings. Listen to the list. You're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's interesting if you think about that quote. I'm not sure if he realized he was quoting it or it's the way that God worked in his life, but he was actually quoting Exodus 34 verse 6, where God himself was describing himself in response to Israel's unfaithfulness. You might remember the story where while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments and the Israelites were waiting impatiently, start worshiping a, a, a calf, a, a God made out of gold, and a calf, the golden calf, and, and that was God's description. He says, man, it's because of my mercy that I relent. And so what the thing that's ironic is Jonah didn't realize that the Jewish people, the only reason they were still there was because of God's unrelenting mercy and abounding love for them. Jonah, and just like us, had kind of a ridiculous understanding or irrational unforgiveness for them when he was on the receiving end of such forgiveness. Thinking about that modern, modern day, present day, what are some of the areas of irrational unforgiveness that we have in our own lives? Thinking about that current day, how, what, does that, what does that look like? I would say that the biggest way that that's seen present day in our world is how we respond to offense. Anyone that's wronged us, anyone that's done something, we have a tendency to hold grudges. We give ourselves permission to that, to not release somebody. Once there's an offense, we're done with somebody. The other arena that I see present day, how we respond to people as if they were Ninevites, is when someone thinks about a particular topic differently than you do. Think about how crazy we've seen that on the other side of COVID, whether it's views politically, whether it's somebody's views about the earth, whether it's somebody's views about uh, the virus, about vaccines, about uh, men and women's sports. Like there, There's so many topics whirling present day that we have drawn lines and divisions with people and are just done with them in the same way that Jonah was done with these people. But I love the question that God asked Jonah. He says this, he says, do you do well to be angry? I think that's a, a, a valid question. It's not, so he's, he's not digging in. He's not, he's not saying, hey, Jonah, cut it out. Stop being such a goofball. He's just asking him a fair question. Is that good for you? Is that, is that do well for you? Is that, how's that, in other words, how's that working out? I've heard it said before the unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. Basically, after the question, rather than engaging in a, in a healthy conversation and where he actually does some personal self-reflection, 
we see instead what Jonah does is he heads to a place where he can sulk. Take a look in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. We'll stop there. So what is Jonah actually doing? What's, it, what's he up to? Basically, if any parent that has a teen understands exactly what's taking place there. When someone doesn't get their way, they have a tendency to storm off with teens. What do we get? They usually head to their room and does the, the door remain open or closed? Man, every time door closed, they pull away because they haven't gotten what they want, what their preference would be. And that's exactly what Jonah's doing here. He's holding on to the hope that just maybe God might still destroy the Ninevites. You're just like, well, they just had this big revival. Why would you be trying to get a, a view of the city? He's thinking, well, maybe that's not going to meet God's demand. But if you think about that irrational thought process, it's similar to what we have, especially in areas of relational conflict. Many cling to the hope that their enemies are going to crumble and they can't handle the idea of seeing them thrive. Remember in, in college, I think I've mentioned this before, went through a really tough breakup. I was actually engaged to be married. And it was really, when I think back to it, the, probably the hardest part of that was on the other side of the broken engagement was seeing my former fiance around the college campus with her new boyfriend. I can't say that I wished the best for them. I can't say that I hoped that they would flourish and that they would do well. I was probably more described like Jonah, just watching from a distance, hoping that the whole thing would train wreck. You see, that's something that Jonah needed to learn, something that God had to do a work on him about. See, he had given them the information, the very limited information. He said to them, you remember, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What Jonah didn't understand was a little something I learned this week about the use of that word overthrown. Basically can mean one of two different things. The idea of overthrown can be completely upended and destroyed or on the positive side of that description, it can also mean transformed and changed. You see, Jonah had the intent that they would be completely destroyed, where God had the intent that they would be transformed and changed. That's how our God views people. That's God's plan, which looks often very different from ours. So my question for us, how do we break out of this place of unforgiveness and resentment. I would say so much of it starts with our thought life, our perspective, the way and the lens in which we view those that we would call an enemy. I was re reading uh, this suggested uh, kind of exercise to help you work through dealing with your list of people that you have grudges against or have issue with. The suggestion was this, I thought it was kind of a neat one, making a list kind of a, a list of the different traits that bother you about those who you describe as an enemy or someone you dislike. So kind of start to make a, a list. And in that list, you might have, and they're selfish or they're careless about other people's feelings or they're dishonest or they're 
unreliable or they're harsh. I don't know what you'd add on that list, but the author making this suggestion, I thought was kind of a neat one. As you make it this exhaustive list of all of the things that bother you about them to then the next step in that to put a, a, check, a check mark next to each one of those descriptions that you've been guilty of at some point in your life. You see, there's value in taking time and, and going through and, and assessing and realize, man, the things that we're often so frustrated with others about, we're often guilty of in varying measures ourselves. You see, we're so quick to see issues with other people, but so slow for ourselves. We're just like, well, I'm only human. I need grace, like cut, cut me some slack. But for others, we have a tendency to define them by their very worst moment. What do I mean by that? See, the example would be somebody that, that lied to you. In our mind, we're like, oh, they're such a liar. Instead of separating that instance from their identity, we want to attach, we want to intertwine the two. It makes it a lot easier to, to vilify that person and to see them as, a, as someone that we hold on to offense. But that's where our God does exactly the opposite. He separates us from our offense. He sees us as a precious son or a daughter, someone made and created in his image. That's when we start to change our lens in which we see people. It drastically changes. When we start to see them as a beloved child of God or son or daughter, you're just like, oh, wait a second. I don't, I don't have permission any longer to hold on to that against them. Continue. Last section here, verse six says this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a day. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We'll stop there as he concludes that idea. And what's happening here, basically, as Jonah is waiting, as he's watching for this city to be destroyed, the, the, you see that God was still doing a work in Jonah's life. You see, at first when you start this story, this account of Jonah, you might be under the impression that it's an account of God rescuing a lost people group. But it's a little bit more than that. You see, it's not just him rescuing a lost people group. It's him doing a work in Jonah's heart. 
You see, he, 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 the mission had been accomplished with the rescue, but the man still needed some important work, obviously. God was dealing not just with a rebellious nation, but with a prejudiced prophet. It's interesting to watch God work here. If I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of times I'll hear somebody tell me, you know what, in my circumstances, God was working, He was coordinating these events, and he was doing all this to teach me a spiritual lesson. Sometimes when I hear somebody talk like that, I'm like, well, I don't know if it was necessarily God working behind the scenes to do that, but that's cool that you had a spiritual experience from it. Basically, what we see in the text here basically shoots down my doubt. Honestly, think about it. How many times in this section we're told that the Lord, in the story of Jonah, we're told that the Lord appointed Back in the former chapters, we're told that he appointed a storm. We're told that he appointed a fish. Now here, we're told that he appointed a plant, the wind, the worm. You see, God is actively involved in even the smallest aspects of our life. Here, we're under the delusion that there's parts of our lives that God's involved in, that he's concerned about, and then there's a good percentage, if you're thinking of a percentage of a pie, 75% that he's uninvolved with, 25% that he's involved with. But truth be told, that's with us having a too small of a view of God. There's no aspect of our life that he's not actively and intimately involved in. As we see here, he's using things, circumstances, things in J Jonah's life to do a work on transforming his, his heart. And he uses nature, I find it kind of cool, uses nature to mess with Jonah. Is that God, is that God being cruel? Well, you, it depends how you want to look at it. I see it as God wanting to save Jonah from his hard heart and prejudice, and he's okay causing some discomfort in order to do that. Sometimes we confuse that discomfort as God being cruel, but the greater, what would be the greater thing, uh, misjustice or injustice, if God just left him alone, if he just allowed him to continue heading down this dangerous track of holding grudges, of hating an entire people group, of choosing who he wants to extend grace to and who not to extend grace to. God was willing to allow some discomfort in order to, to shake him up to get his attention. And that's exactly what happens here. How does it play out? First, we see Jonah's response to this plant. We're told that he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. That's basically the only time in the entire story of grumpy Jonah that we see a glimpse of him being happy. Some have false interpretations about what this leafy plant is and why it brings comfort. That's maybe the Californians in the group. That's not that type of a plant. But here it's just providing shade. It's providing some uh, relief from the, the, the sunshine. It'd be long days sitting outside watching that city. But what happens is he goes from happy to literally the, the farthest swing of the pendulum. What does he say again? He's saying, I would rather die. You're just like, man, you are Jonah the drama king. What in the, what in the world is going on? You see, when we suffer from unforgiveness, 
when we suffer from holding on to bitterness and things like that, man, all of a sudden, rational thought gets thrown out the window. There's so many negative aspects to unforgiveness that trickle into our, our life, and we see it, obviously, here. And you see him ask the second time, do you do well to be angry? In other words, what's the upside of it? How does that benefit you? If you're allowed to, uh, basically, if you think about it, uh, he's explaining to him that God doesn't think like that. Ezekiel 33, 33:11 explains God's heart. It says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way, turn back, turn back from their evil ways. You see, that was God's heart on display. He was demonstrating his genuine concern for these lost people. He didn't see them for the, he didn't define them like Jonah did by their sins, by their failings. Instead, he saw them as precious, beloved children that needed to come back. He doesn't find joy in seeing anyone lost. It tells us a little bit about our God. If you're allowed to have a compassion, he asks him, if you're allowed to have a compassion for this plant that you had nothing to do with, shouldn't God be able to have pity on a people made in his image? Think about that. That's the lesson he's trying to instill on Jonah. If it's okay for, for you to be so concerned about this plant, how are you going to confront God for his compassion for a, a, a person literally made in his image? You'd rather see them turn from their evil ways and live and prosper. Most Bible scholars suggest that this 120,000 that it's describing is not talking about the entire people group, but instead referring to just the children within the community. When he describes them not knowing their left hand from their right hand, basically excavations of the city show that it was much larger than just 120,000. And so in that, he's explaining, or a lot would suggest that it's just referring to saying, hey, this is a place where there's 120,000 kids and the animals basically appealing to some degree of sensitivity that maybe Jonah might have. Just think about the suggestion of that still advertisers today. What do we try to do when we're making hard appeals? It's usually something with kids and usually something with animals. To some degree, that's the direction it seems that God is pointing to. But if you think about it, this is how the book concludes. Jonah's account of his story. It leaves us with that as a drop-off. He just ends up talking about the kids and the cattle, the end. What's going on with that conclusion? Why don't we get a chance to hear from Jonah some kind of a, a repentant heart, a, a change, a transformation? Maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe that's not where it happened. Maybe as Jonah reflects on this, this is stuff that Jonah had to maybe learn years later. And maybe, just maybe, this story isn't about Jonah as the main character, but giving us a glimpse of God's heart for people. Giving us a, a picture of, of his compassion, of his empathy, of his willingness if we turn to him to offer rescue and forgiveness. 
I want to end our time together with just a couple things just as we recap. What are a couple uh, mental health lessons? We said that this is going to pull back to that, some different things that relate to that, things to consider. A couple things, just three that I jotted down there, is the question that was repeated, what good does your anger do? What good does your anger do? See, we're unfortunately in a, in a version of Christian, Christianity present day where we give permission for little things like grudges and unforgiveness and, and lists of people that you're like, yeah, I don't really get along with them. I, I love them, but I don't like them, you might hear somebody say. But that has no room from what Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 44. It says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, we have a tendency to want to make two camps of people, good people and bad people. Rather than what Scripture teaches, Scripture teaches all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and no one is righteous, not even one. See, God's in the process of teaching Jonah the same thing that we need to understand, is understanding that there's no good and bad people, just bad ones, with varying levels of restraint. Our mindset about people needs to change. When we start to realize, when we start to realize we're all falling short of God's glory, when we start to see people through that lens, man, it changes you. It changes your mindset about others, which leads to the next one that I jotted down there, that I'm in desperate need of his mercy too. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I love that expression, that idea that every single one of us is in desperate needs, need of God's grace. And God's in the business of taking people like the Ninevites, people that you think, man, there is no way they're ever going to turn. There's no way that they're ever going to rescue. They're beyond hope, beyond reach. You see, the, the log of heaven is going to be packed, is, is packed with a guest list of basically mess-ups just like the Ninevites. For us, as we're trying to make sense and trying to navigate this world and our thinking as it relates to that, understanding that I'm just as dependent on His mercy as everyone else. Then the last thought, just to leave you with, is that your eyes have never fallen on somebody that God's not crazy about. Man, it doesn't matter what they've done to you, what offense they've had, or how far they've wandered. Your eyes have never fallen on somebody that God isn't crazy about, that his heart doesn't bleed for, that he doesn't have a desire for them to repent and to come to him for rescue. I'll tell you what, this shift in mindset about others and seeing them through the lens that God sees them, I think that mindset change really drastically impacts how we respond to the circumstances that we face on a daily basis. And we can't sit around just pouting because things didn't go well. We can't kind of focus on the, the negative. We can't hold grudges. There's just no room for that in the kingdom. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we don't get what we deserve because I'm, as much as anyone, completely dependent on His grace. Let me wrap up in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to be in your word and to see another account of a failing that we can learn from. 
an area where someone completely melted down, where they uh, messed up. But I believe as uh, he's looking back on this experience, he's willing to allow himself to look foolish in order to highlight and to celebrate the goodness and faithfulness and forgiveness of our God. Pray that we'd learn from this, draw from it. We again thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.